At Kenilworth Union during Lent, we've been preaching this sermon series called Lent in Plain Sight, Lent in Devotion and Ten Objects. We've looked at dust, bread, coins, shoes, thorns, and today, cross. A gospel from, a lesson from the Gospel of Matthew. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we thank you for refusing to give up on us and on the world. You gave up your life for our sake, pouring yourself up completely so that even the cross could be transformed into a means of life and grace. Amen. Maybe you have seen the TikTok reel showing a young woman. She does not appear to be the brightest bulb in the chandelier, just a head and shoulder shot. And she asks, where do I get one of those little T's on a gold chain? And the off-camera voice asks, you mean a cross? And she says, a cross from what? (laughs) But we can forgive her confusion, right? Maybe her unspoken question is, why would anybody wear an instrument of execution around their neck? How would you feel if there were an electric chair on our altar here at Kenilworth Union Church? And how would you approach a comrade who had a hypodermic needle lethal injection around her neck? And yet somehow the cross has become the central icon of our faith. And this is true from the tiny storefront Pentecostal church in L.A. to the magnificent Orthodox Cathedral St. Sophia in Kiev. And we don't know exactly what Christ's cross looked like, but over the centuries it has unleashed the imagination of Christian iconographers. The most common form of the cross, of course, is the Latin cross, which resembles a small lowercase t. There's also the tau cross, Tau is the letter T in the Greek and the Hebrew alphabets. The tau looks like a capital T with the cross beam on the very top of the horizontal post. In the 13th century, the Crusaders were fond of the Jerusalem cross. Do you know why the Jerusalem cross has five wounds, five crosses? It's to represent the five wounds of Jesus Christ, one in each hand, one in each foot, and in his side. In the 4th century, St. Patrick gave us the Celtic cross. Patrick placed a nimbus around the joint in the cross. The nimbus symbolizes the rays of the sun. It was a sacred cherished symbol for the natives of the island of Ireland. Patrick put the nimbus around the cross because he wanted them to know that the cross was for them too. And of course, there's the Orthodox cross, which has three cross beams, a short one at the top, which stands for the sign above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, a middle one for his arms and a shorter one at the bottom. Do you know why the bottom one is crooked? 
They say he was in such pain, he pressed down on it in agony. There is also, of course, the X-shaped cross of St. Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland, the Holy Land. And the square, symmetrical cross of St. George, the dragon-slaying patron saint of England, which together, of course, comprise the Union Jack, the flag of the United Kingdom. Now, how did the cross become the central symbol of our faith? It's because of the way the Bible tells the story, right? The the Bible is at least as interested in Jesus' death as it is in Jesus' life and resurrection. The Bible doesn't care about Christmas. Pshaw Christmas, it says. I don't want any cute babies. I'm more interested in corpses. And so, for instance, the Bible has this inordinate interest in the death of Jesus that sometimes the four Gospels, these four brief Jesus biographies, are called passion stories with extended introductions. So, for instance, the Gospel of John spends 12 chapters telling us the story of Jesus' life from his birth until the Last Supper, 33 years and 12 chapters. And then John spends the next nine chapters describing the last four days of Jesus' life. Twelve chapters for 33 years, nine chapters for four days. A passion story with an extended introduction. Now this disproportionate emphasis on Jesus' death is odd when you stop to think that we Christians have never figured it out been thinking about this for 2,000 years, we still don't know why Jesus' death should be so meaningful to, to us. The Bible says it over and over again. It was necessary for an innocent man to die for many. Why was it necessary for Jesus of Nazareth specifically to die in just the way he did? Over the centuries, the church has concocted many intricate hypotheses to explain this. Most commonly, of course, there is something to do with the fact that Jesus is a ransom for us. The scripture says that Jesus died for us, pronobis in Latin. Jesus died instead of us. Jesus died so that we would not have to. That is to say, broken wayward humanity has accrued an infinite debt by offending infinite goodness, God, and so the only way to offend the wrath, uh, to appease the wrath of that offending that, that God is by the death of the innocent God-man, the infinite innocent God-man. That's one of the explanations for how Jesus' death is so meaningful to us. Other times the church has talked about this gigantic cosmic Armageddon going on around the earth, around humanity, between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Somehow humanity gets pinioned between the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. And at Golgotha, on that first Good Friday, heaven outwits earth. God plays a gigantic joke on Satan. God gives God's beloved son to Satan, which makes Satan think he's won, but he really hasn't. God wrests victory out of their apparent defeat. Twisted joke. April Fools. So congratulations, I've just taken you on 2,000 years of provocative, controversial theology and you survived. Maybe it's a lot simpler than that. Maybe God came down from on high to be with us, disguised as a common carpenter from Nazareth, not to 
satisfy the wrath of a vengeful God nor to win a victory in this apocalyptic universal battle that's going above us and around us and without us. Not any of that, but rather just to show us what humanity is like and what divinity is like. Maybe God comes down disguised as a carpenter to show us what happens when perfect innocence confronts the most vainglorious, direst villainies we're capable of. See, we're strangely intolerant of and thoroughly unsettled by undisguised goodness. We don't know what to do with it. Sometimes, sometimes we try to annihilate it. For instance, at Golgotha. And so at the cross, God shows us that God's singular, inimitable avatar would rather forgive than avenge, would rather love than hate, would rather die than kill. At the cross, God shows us what unmatched, everlasting victories God can make surge up out of apparent malice. Don't be bamboozled by appearances, says God on Good Friday. Don't be bamboozled by appearances. I have my own ways. Maybe what looks to you like sheer calamity is actually an immortal plan I have been devising since eons before the mighty oceans themselves surged up from the deep. Look what I can make of undisguised malice, God says to us on Good Friday. Look, I don't want to put lipstick on the pig of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There is no other way to describe this than as a crucifixion of a sovereign land. And yet it's my job to ask what God's got to do with that. What does God have to do with that situation? Maybe nothing at all. Maybe God is just as disgusted as we are. On the other hand, one journalist pointed out recently that when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, what he wanted was to become the revered father of a renewed, expanded, glorious Russian Empire, a Soviet Union redux, but that what happened instead is that he became the father of a new Ukraine nation. You know, Ukraine was always Ukraine, even before the invasion, but the Ukrainianness of Ukraine has redoubled since the invasion. Not only that, but Vladimir Putin has somehow managed to weld the 30 obstreperous, bickering nations of NATO into a single, indivisible unity. This is practically a miracle. Nobody else can do that. Before the invasion, it was all, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. And since the invasion, it's yes, 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 let's do it that way. This is a miracle. This is positively the worst thing he has done for the world and for his own beloved land. Before evil can be defeated, it has to be confronted. It has to be seen for what it is. And that's what happened in the Ukraine. Malice came out of the shadows. Once we see malice for what it is, we have to renounce it. That's what happened at Golgotha with that crown of thorns, those nails of iron, and that cross of wood. We saw evil for what it was. 
1965, in March, a 36-year-old Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King and another 25-year-old Baptist preacher named John Lewis led 600 people in a protest march from Selma to Montgomery, the state capital. But the Reverends King and Lewis only got as far as the Edmund Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River where they were confronted by Sheriff Jim Clark and his over-militarized police force who met the crowds with nightsticks, bullwhips, and tear gas. What the police didn't figure on was that camera persons from all over the world and print journalists would describe every detail of the carnage and broadcast it around the globe, which horrified people of goodwill everywhere. It was a terrible day. They called it Bloody Sunday. And yet, it was the beginning of the end of voter discrimination in the United States, at least until now. You probably knew this, but if I ever knew it, I'd forgotten. The irony that the Edmund Pettus Bridge is named for a, a former Confederate general who later became the Ku Klux Klan's Grand Dragon of the Empire of Alabama. The Klan was comprehensively crucified that day on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Near the end of Shakespeare's magnum opus, King Lear, when it's clear that his favored daughters, his beloved children, Goneril and Regan, in fact have been perfidious and will be his ultimate undoing, and that his scorned banished child, Cordelia, is in fact in France mustering up her armies to return to England to rescue her father at great peril to herself. The very end, the great abdicator says, Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. So that's why the cross is the central icon of our faith. Upon such sacrifices, my friends, the gods themselves throw incense. <laughs> 